Today is Monday. It's the 30th of January, 2017. Chamye Sayadaw, as he is known here in Burma, or Sayadaw Ujanaka, as he is known in the West, has written and composed many verses and chants, which the Burmese yogis regularly chant before their daily Dhamma talk. Jamie Sayadaw has also been my preceptor when I ordained as a nun in 1992. And many of his verses and chants are metta chants, and one of them is the metta indeed speech and thought that has that which we have been chanting in the last few days. In Burmese it starts and so on. So in today's talk I want to enlarge on the topic of metta indeed and speech. As you know, in our metta meditation practice, we develop metta in our heart and mind, which means we develop it on the mental level with the help of these metta phrases, the metta wishes. And so, with this practice here, here in this two-week meditation retreat, or one month for some of you, so we try to make this quality of loving-kindness, of friendliness, or benevolence, to make it strong and powerful, or we try to make it a new habit so that it becomes the natural tendency of our heart and mind, so that our heart and mind just very naturally dwells in metta and not in unwholesome states, such as aversion, anger, greed, jealousy, miserliness, attachment, and so on. To develop metta on this mental level is very, very important, but it's not enough. Metta needs to be manifested or expressed also on the verbal level and on the physical level, which means metta manifested in deed, metta manifested in speech. The Buddha had said that everything originates in the mind, 
that basically everything is mind-made. And the very first two verses in the Dhammapada, they state this very clearly. These are the verses. All states of being are determined by mind. It is mind that leads the way. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows the hoof print of the animal that draws it, so suffering will surely follow when we speak or act impulsively from an impure state of mind. And the second verse, all states of being are determined by mind. It is mind that leads the way. As surely as our shadow never leaves us, so well-being will follow with a pure state of mind. And as we have come to hear and understand, metta is a pure state of mind. So because all actions of body, all actions of speech start in the mind, in the heart, we need to make this benevolent, loving and kind mind base really strong. We must develop metta, loving kindness, to such a degree that it becomes really powerful, that it becomes unwavering and deeply rooted in our heart, in our mind. And of course, this takes time, a lot of time, because as we know from our experience, old habits are so strong. They can be so tenacious. We know that our habitual reactions, especially the unskillful ones, they are so quick to arise. So for example, we are bothered by a mosquito and off we go. <laughs> we smash it. An expression of dosa. Ill will. <coughs> or we may see another yogi with a very nice shawl. And woof, we envy this person for her nice shawl and think, ah, oh, I'd like to have it too. Loba, wanting, greed. So it takes a lot of time to undo these habitual patterns. It also takes a lot of effort as well as patience, perseverance. But change is possible, there is no doubt. 
But for this change or transformation to happen, we must practice. We must put these teachings into practice. We must all the advice given by the Buddha and by the wise people into practice ourselves. A nun who lived at the time of the Buddha, she said it very simply and beautifully. She said, engage with the Buddha's teaching. One who does so has no regrets. To engage with the Buddha's teaching, this means do it, practice it. And this is so important. It cannot be stressed enough that the Buddha's teaching must be put into practice ourselves. Because the Buddha's teaching is not simply a sophisticated teaching or a philosophy that comes with the promise of freedom from all kinds of suffering. The teaching of the Buddha is also not something that we simply read or learn. It's not something that we simply commit to memory. Even if we had studied the entire range of the Buddha's teaching, and even if we knew, the, knew this teaching by heart, this would not be enough because this would not necessarily lead to liberation. In 2000, I went to a Buddhist conference in Lumbini, the birthplace of the Buddha, and there a nun from Bhutan used the following uh, illustration. She said, <clears throat> a person who has only studied the Buddha's teaching but not actually practiced it is like a donkey that carries the whole Buddhist scriptures on its back. All the different talks and instructions and advice that the Buddha gave during his lifetime, they were given with the purpose that those present, those who listened to these words of the Buddha, so that they could apply these teachings in their lives, so that they could engage with this teaching. As I said, the Buddha didn't regard him as a philosopher wanting to put up a nice philosophy. The Buddha considered himself a physician whose sole motivation was to heal people from their suffering and to guide them to a state 
of profound well-being, to guide them to a state of complete liberation. So the Buddha's approach was very pragmatic. He gave advice for people to put into practice. And if one really puts the instructions into practice, one can notice change after some time. And if one really engages with the Buddha's teachings, this yields tangible results. And then, as this nun, as Patachara said, one who does so, engaging with the Buddha's teaching, so one who does so has no regrets. In 2009, I was part of a study carried out at the University in Zurich, in Switzerland. So the study wanted to show that metta, or loving-kindness, makes a person a socially more active person, or that a person with metta is more inclined to help others, is more inclined to assist others, that a meta person is less selfish and less competitive. And my part in this study was to teach a group of people how to practice metta meditation. So they had two groups. One group had to learn to practice metta meditation, and the other group, they just did a memory training. So I had this group of about 50 people for a whole day, during which they learned the practice of metta meditation, and we practiced. And then they had to continue their practice for two weeks in their day-to-day lives, and then again a day of metta meditation. And before the first uh, day of metta meditation, and then in between and after, they had MRIs taken of their brain while performing certain tests to see which regions in the brain were active. And so on the second full day of metta meditation, um, at the beginning in the morning, we made a round and everybody uh, said what kind of experiences they had made during these two weeks practicing in the day-to-day life. And one woman just put it very clearly and straightforward. She said, you know, wishing others happiness makes actually me happy. And for her, 
this came as a complete surprise. And you must know, these people, they had never practiced meditation. They were not really interested in Buddhist meditation, but by taking part in such a study, they get a little bit of money. And of course, many were students at the university. That was nice pocket money. And they learned something on top of that. So, this woman and as well as others who expressed similar, similar experiences, so by just putting these instructions into practice, she, real, uh, she experienced a result that was quite surprising to her. And the outcome of this study actually proved the assumption. So the people of the Meta group, they were more inclined to help others than the people from the group who only did a memory training. And this tangible result or this measurable result already happened after a relatively short period of practice. So if one is more concerned with helping others rather than just selfishly working towards one's own benefit, then there is definitely more harmony in community, communities, less quarrels and disputes. And at one time, the Buddha told his assistant, the Venerable Ananda, that bodily acts of loving-kindness create love and respect, that they create harmony. And the Buddha said further, verbal acts of loving-kindness create love and respect, they create harmony. And also the Buddha said, mental acts of loving-kindness create love and respect, they create harmony. So if the heart and mind is really full of sincere or genuine metta, then the actions of body and speech will also be infused with metta. So then they will become metta actions, they will become metta speech. Venerable Viranyani um, has briefly touched on this topic in her talk two days ago, and she called it the litmus test. We might assume and believe that our metta is really strong and powerful. But then, when we become irritated by something or by somebody, 
it shows that our metta is not yet really firmly established in our heart and mind, and even less so if we express it in words or deeds, gestures. So metta expressed as bodily actions, they can range from very simple kind actions to really very outstanding and amazing um, bodily actions. <coughs> so a very simple metta action could be holding the door open for the person who comes behind you, or picking up a branch on the path so that the next person walking on this path does not need to step over it. Or it could be letting a stressed out mother getting in front of the queue in the supermarket or giving an elderly lady or man the seat in the train or in the bus. So these are very simple bodily meta actions that we all are able to do and that we do many times. Here is an example of an action based on metta, which is a bit more difficult to do. And this happened in 2005, when an Israeli soldier shot a Palestine boy in the head. And this boy, um, he was just playing with a toy gun, which the Israeli soldier took for a real gun. The father of that boy, in his, when he was young, he was fighting against the Israeli occupation. At that time, he was arrested and put into jail. And in those years for the father, it was clear that he needed to fight, to take revenge and to kill. However, later he insisted that he had never killed any other uh, person. But now in the meantime, he was 43 years old, he had become more balanced and more down to earth because he had seen and experienced so much suffering, so much cruelty, so much misery for himself and for others. So then his boy, Ahmed, was rushed into an Israeli hospital. He was not dead on the spot, but the injury was so severe that the doctors said that they could not save the boy. But they asked the parents if they would donate the organs 
so that they could help other children to survive. And so the parents decided, yes, that they would donate the organs of their son, everything except the heart. But even with that, six Israeli kids could be saved. And later on, when the father was asked what moved him or them uh, to this extraordinary deed, he said, it's the love for children. They need help independent from their nationality or religion. So this was indeed a very noble-hearted deed, a truly meta-infused deed. The father, the mother of the boy, they were able to put aside all notions of enmity or hatred or revenge, and he was able to simply see other children as kids who needed as much love as his own son. And here is another story of a meta-infused deed. And this story happened about 50 or 60 years ago in Switzerland, in a small town called Olten. One day, a policeman saw a, a car which was wrongly parked on the square before the church in the historic part of Olten. And as it, as it was his duty as a policeman, he wrote the fine and put the paper under the wiper of the front window. And he noticed that it was a rather old and run-down car. So then, after he turned around and wanted to walk away, but just in that moment, moment, across the square on the other side of the road, he saw a woman with two small children coming out of the shoe shop, a fögere shoe shop. And she held two big bags of, um, of this fögere shoe shop in her hands. And the policeman noted that this woman and the two children were rather poorly dressed. And they started to walk right into his direction, right in the direction of the car. And in that moment, the policeman understood that the mother just had wanted to buy some cheap shoes for her children and just had let the, left the car there on that spot. And he also realized that the mother 
that for the mother it would be very difficult or even impossible to pay the fine that she hadn't that she didn't have the money for that and so with that very quickly he took the fine uh, and put it into his pocket and walked away but because he had already written the fine and had a copy in his book he could not simply throw it away so what he did next was he went to the post office and paid the fine from his own pocket so this is the spirit of metta wishing others to be happy and well wishing them not to encounter any difficulties or problems and so based on this meta wish meta attitude also engage in appropriate actions so that others do not encounter difficulties problems or encounter suffering in regard to verbal actions or speech the buddha had said this is from the machimanikaya people may speak at the right time or at the wrong time they may say the truth or not they may be polite or rude their speech may be beneficial or pure nonsense they may speak with goodwill or with hate and ill will you should train like this i will not get upset and angry i will not utter one malicious word i will remain friendly loving and compassionate and i will meet these people with an open heart free from aversion and ill will with a heart open and wide i will radiate my loving kindness over the whole world the way we use our speech has a tremendous impact on ourselves and others an impact on how we feel and how others feel and react The Buddha's advice on right speech was very straightforward. He said that we only should say what is true and beneficial. And even if something is true but not beneficial, then we should not say it. Then we rather keep quiet. what we say should not only be true and beneficial but it should also be said in a way that is gentle 
kind and pleasing to hear. As it is expressed in this chant, metta, indeed, speech and thought, in the second verse, speaking words that are sweet, beneficial and pleasing to hear. Metta manifested as speech. This can range from very simple, kind words to amazingly loving and uh, friendly words. You know, already saying a kind and friendly hello or guten morgen or bonjour or friendly namaskar. Already this can make a big uh, difference. At one stage I made it a practice or an exercise that whenever I would go out and walk down the street uh, in Switzerland where I live so that I just would greet anybody I met, not only the neighbors I knew, but any other people. And it was a really interesting experience that sometimes people, you know, just having their heads straight and kind of not showing any interest that somebody was coming their way. But then when I just said, Guatemala, Guatemala, surprise, but a friendly uh, greeting came. Others, nothing. <laughs> and so also to see my expectations. <laughs> or could be somebody in a very crowded bus or train uh, stands on your foot. And you know, wasn't that bad. And so, you know, instead of just, you know, getting upset or angry or, ah, oh, you know, uh, you stepped on my foot, but you know, it hasn't been so bad. You know, this can happen under such circumstances. Makes a difference. Here comes an example, a person who took this advice to heart and really tried to um, manifest her kindness, her friendliness, not only in her speech, but also in her actions. And it's of the Saint Therese of Lisieux. She is one of the patron saints of France and she lived from 1873 to 1897. She lived in the northern part of France. And at the age of 15, she entered the order of the Carmelites, a Catholic order. And the Carmelites are a so-called closed order, and this means after entering the cloister, 
one stays there for the rest of one's life and one has almost no contact with the outside world. So all the contact with other people is reduced to the other nuns within the walls of the cloister. And so we need to understand that when one enters the cloister, one has not chosen the women with whom one is going to live. And there one eats together, one sleeps together, one works together, one prays together. So this is like if we would say, okay folks, now the gate of the meditation center is closed and you will never leave this center again. You will never see anybody else. You are going to stay here for the rest of your life. Imagine how this would be. And so for Therese, there was one nun she could not stand, absolutely not stand. And she disliked everything at this nun, the way she walked, the way she talked, the way she worked, the way um, she looked. Every morning, the nuns had a silent contemplation in a small chapel. And the disliked nun sat exactly in the row in front of Therese. And during that silent contemplation, that nun made very irregular kind of clicking sounds, funny noises, and this greatly upset and disturbed Therese. She got very angry at this nun. And so this happened every day. Every day Therese got upset and angry. After some time, she started to realize that she was going to spend the rest of her life with this nun and that this nun was very unlikely to change her habit of making these clicking sounds. And Therese also started to realize that God must have seen something beautiful in this nun because God had called this woman to become a nun. And so Therese decided that there must be something beautiful in this nun, something beautiful that she had not seen yet. And it also dawned on Therese that the only way to tackle the problem was to change herself. And so from then on, she no longer tried to avoid the nun, for example, when she came walking down a corridor. But she walked right up to her and greeted her in a friendly way. And she made a big effort 
to be really kind, to be really nice to this nun, to speak friendly um, to her. She tried to treat this nun as if she were her best friend. And then she also started to give this nun little presents. Sometimes she went to her and helped her finish her work. And she always gave her the most beautiful smile she could produce. So Therese really did everything to make this nun her best friend. And gradually, it really came from the depths of her heart. And then, after some time, one day, this nun came up to her and said, I really don't know why you love me so much. And Therese thought, if you only knew. So at the outset of Therese's inner transformation was the sincere wish to have a friendly and kind relationship with this nun. And so Therese set her mind in this direction, in the right direction. At the very outset of it, her words, her deeds, Deeds might not have come from the deepest place in her heart. They might have been, you know, what we could call uh, fake, uh, fake meta, or actor, actress meta, you know, played. But gradually, these kind acts of kind acts became more sincere until finally they really become uh, sincere meta-acts and uh, speech. So the nun had not changed at all. She continued to make these funny uh, clicking sounds in the chapel. But now this was no longer a problem for Therese. Saint Therese did not perform big wonders, but she worked uncountable small wonders. Small wonders that we, we too, are able to perform, namely to change one's attitude, to change oneself. We know it's very difficult to change the world, but we can change our heart and mind. And then, when we change our heart and mind, then the whole world changes. Saint Therese had a very short life. Already at the age of 24, she died 
of tuberculosis. So, as it becomes more clear, as we, stand, as we understand uh, better, Metta helps to establish a benevolent attitude towards others, towards other living beings. And on the base of this Metta attitude, our actions of body and speech will be beneficial and supportive. And so with that, we naturally refrain from any actions of body and speech that harm or hurt others in any way. And in this way, metta becomes an inner guideline or a frame for our actions of body and speech. And so based on metta, we will not hurt or kill other living beings. Based on metta, we will not take the belongings of others. We will not steal. Based on metta, we will not engage in sexual misconduct. Based on metta, we will not tell lies, use harmful speech. And based on metta, we will not take intoxicants, any substances that cloud uh, the mind, make it heedless, reckless. And so these five points are guidelines for a decent, beneficial life. And such guidelines for our life in the world are found in all religions, in spiritual traditions. And the Buddha also proposed a set of guidelines, these five guidelines, for a decent, virtuous and blameless life. So virtuous conduct of body and speech, this is called sila. And sila deals with living beings, how we relate to them, how we interact with them. So sila is a foundation for our practice, but sila is also a result of our practice. So at the outset of practice, we take these guidelines for a virtuous life to live our life accordingly, to avoid harmful, uh, unskillful uh, actions, to make sure we do not hurt or harm uh, others. But then, later on in our practice, sila, virtuous conduct, is the result of our practice. 
because then we really and deeply understand that no one wants to suffer. It's also the understanding of how our actions affect other people, other beings. The understanding on how we depend on each other. Sila, virtue, it's actually just common sense. Like in the same way as I do not want to be hurt or harmed, I should not hurt or harm others. In the same way as I do not want that my car is stolen, I do not steal another person's car, and so on. So if everybody were reasonable and could live up to this common sense, then such precepts or ethical guidelines or commandments would not be necessary. However, because the defilements of greed and anger and wanting and dislike and jealousy and so on, because these defilements are strong, such guidelines, ethical guidelines, are needed wherever people live together. The Buddha saw and understood very clearly how important virtue is for our practice of liberation. And that's why sila is part of the Eightfold Path. So liberation is not possible without virtue. On a worldly level, we keep the precepts so that we do not hurt or harm others. Of course, this is the gross or obvious level of the precepts. They conduce to a harmonious living together. But actually then, later on in the practice, we come to see that on a deeper level, we keep the precepts so that we do not hurt or harm ourselves. Each time a defilement arises and each time it is acted out as unwholesome action, unwholesome speech, we actually hurt ourselves by creating unwholesome karma. And based on the law of cause and effect, this unwholesome karma will produce an effect sooner or later, an unwholesome effect, and we will experience it. And on top of creating unwholesome karma, each time we act out anger or greed or jealousy on the level of a bodily action or on the level of speech, we strengthen 
this unskillful response. And as I said in my last talk, in this way, the bad, unwholesome habit becomes even stronger. So we solidify it with each repetition. Or, as brain researchers have found out, this makes the grooves of these habitual responses even bigger or deeper in our brain. And so the likelihood to fall into this um, increases. So, sila, or virtue, is our friendly or kind, our beneficial relationship with other beings in regard to our actions of body and speech. Metta, or loving-kindness, is our friendly and beneficial relationship with others in regard to our actions of body, speech, and thoughts. So we see both sila and metta deal with living beings. And it is both their concern not to hurt others, not to harm them in any way, not to inflict suffering. Or in other words, it is both the concern that living beings can live happily, peacefully. When our metta, loving-kindness, has become strongly established, strongly rooted in our heart and mind, then our actions of body and speech will be metta-infused. Then they will be virtuous. So that means that we naturally keep the precepts. So then we no longer keep these precepts as an outer rule or outer guidelines, but rather as an inner attitude of benevolence and care. I will close this talk with some words of the 17th Karmapa, a monk in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. From the time we open our eyes in the morning until we sleep at night, if we can pass the whole day with a kind and loving heart and a cheerful face, our mind will be relaxed when we go to sleep at night. On the other hand, if we spend the day making others upset, if we fight, and even if we win, when we are going off to sleep at night, we will have regrets 
and our mind will not be at ease. I thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.